Welcome to Spark Science, where we share stories of human curiosity. I'm Regina Barber de Graff, astrophysicist, pop culture enthusiast, and we are here with uh, show favorite Casey Dreyer. And he's been on shows um, previously, and his title is Chief Advocate at the Planetary Society. And today we're going to talk about space and how it's much harder to travel through space than people think. Yeah, we're going to be real bummers. Yes. But we're going to talk about pop culture, too, so that's going to be fun. Okay. Yeah, okay. We're also going to answer questions. I think there's a, been in the news kind of how industry has taken the lead in spaceflight and I think people may be confused or maybe excited about how that's different from what it's been in the past. So I want to talk about that too. So my main first question is, what do our listeners and our watchers need to know to kind of understand how, um, you know, crewed missions, uh, you know, human flight has, has changed in the last few years? What kind of background do we need to know to understand what's happening right now? Well, I think the most important thing with human spaceflight to remember is that space constantly trying to kill you. It is very dangerous, it is very unpleasant, right? It's full of radiation, you know, notably it's lacking in air, uh, so you will die like six times, you know, like if you ever get depressurized into space. Like there, it's a very nasty place. And this is why spaceflight has classically been expensive, because you know, you're, think of it this way, you're, you have to bring, with you're sending a human into space, you're bringing a little bubble of Earth with you, an Earth environment with you. Mm -hmm. And to maintain that against all of the, you know, problems of being in space, that just takes a lot of work, it takes a lot of reliability, um, takes a lot of, you know, engineering and assurance, a lot of safety issues. And so that drives space flight. And, and really, whenever you put a human on a rocket, whatever the goal of that mission is, whatever it wants to do, there's only one real mission success criteria, and that's to bring the astronaut home alive. And that everything else is secondary. How has that changed um, over the last, let's say, 50 years? Well, I think we've realized how dangerous it is. So, you know, when first human in space, Oh, Yuri. Yes, Yuri Gagarin. Yep. Uh, April 12th, we just right. had that uh, anniversary in 1961. Kind of kicked off what we really considered the space race in the 1960s. The first ac accidents they started to have um, was uh, the Apollo 1 crew in 1967. Uh, you also had issues then, of course, with the Columbia and Challenger space shuttles. Right. Uh, Challenger in 1986 and Columbia in 2003. And over time, they realized, you know, if you fly in space long enough, eventually, just statistically, something will go wrong. Right. Right. Like the, skydiving. Yeah. Right. There's <laughs> or walking down the street. Right. Right. Or, or, or driving a car. Literally doing anything. <laughs> and so trying to understand and and the big lessons that they learned from those failures, particularly on the U.S. side, was that what they thought was safe wasn't. Mm -hmm. They didn't understand ways in which things could fail. They didn't understand in Apollo one that a fire could break out on the launch pad. Mm -hmm. And they hadn't planned for that, and that's why they died. They didn't understand that the O-ring that protected and joined the shuttle main uh, side boosters going up would be brittle when it was cold. Right. And so it would crack and leak out and blow up the whole thing uh, in, in the Challenger situation. They didn't understand that foam could fall off the big center fuel tank of the space shuttle and crack a wing, destroying the Columbia spacecraft. So. There's always ways in which something can go wrong. And the more you do it, the more of those you're going to find, but that doesn't mean you found them all. And that's why space flight for humans is always going to be inherently risky. 
where you're up there traveling around at five miles a second, the heat of re-entry and all the complexities and the things that have to work right. We come to a time when something happens and we have a tragedy that goes along with our triumphs. And I guess that's the story of all mankind. So I, I, I went into this professionally because I saw rocket launch for the very first time. Um, I'd always been a space fan and got my background in physics, but was working as a software engineer. And seeing a rocket actually launch for the first time, sitting with thousands of people who helped build the thing on top of that rocket, it was the Curiosity rover, is a completely different experience in person than watching it on TV. In person, you feel the tension in the air. You feel the hopes and dreams and the future careers of all the people you're sitting with. Mm -hmm. You know, watching a tiny little rocket in the distance that is, you know, basically a giant bomb. It's a, a rocket is just controlling the explosion of a bomb and pushing it downwards. The most dangerous period of that rocket uh, project's life. Um, you're sitting with all those people, so as it's counting down, it's getting quieter and quieter and quieter. And the tension is getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And then it launches, and you realize you're watching something like a 30, 40 story tall structure lift off into space never to come back again. And then everyone just flips out and goes crazy and cheers and cries and screams and that, that, that tension and release because of the danger inherent in it. And right. I didn't even have humans on it. So I kind of want to get into, because I, you're, your position at Planetary Society is also related to advocacy. Um, well, it is. You're the chief advocate. But related to policy and actually going to talk to elected officials and kind of encouraging them to spend more money on, you know, government-sponsored missions and uh, endeavors. And we can get into industry in a second, but how have you seen that change just in your own career of, like, money being given to, um, to space? Well, thankfully, in the last few years, NASA's been getting bigger and bigger budgets. They've actually been on a, on a good run in the last five years. The, okay. the numbers have been going up. Okay. A couple percentage a year, nothing crazy, just slightly above inflation, basically. Overall, politics have changed in the last few years that after initial attempts to, to cut spending, everyone's agreed it's actually more fun to spend money. And so overall, the pie <laughs> has been getting bigger. Yeah. And so NASA can grab a slightly larger slice mm -hmm. as well at the same time. So that's been great. And then also we've been specifically focusing on the science side of NASA. And there's no real, there's no private scientific exploration company. The action of answering a question, what do we want to know about something we don't, has no guaranteed economic payoff, right? right. This is why public invests in it. Um, and so there's no, you know, private company that'll explore Mars for us scientifically. And so the, the role of government is absolutely essential. And it actually maintains tens of thousands of, of scientists in this country. It keeps them uh, employed functionally because of the work that NASA does. Um, and it's, a, it's kind of a fascinating endeavor. And it's actually one of the best things I think our nation does or any nation can do because it really like, represents a part of our self, right? The, the better angel of our nature to say, what's out there? Yeah. Well, let's go look. And to do it peacefully and systematically and cooperatively, like it's just everything about it. The act of the act of seeking answers to fundamental questions is one of the best things humankind has ever invented. What is the mission of the Planetary Society? Is it linked to what you just said? Yeah, it, it, it's it's literally to um, enable the world's citizens to ex to advance space science and exploration. So yeah. we want everyone to find a way to contribute to support 
the advancement of fundamental knowledge about our universe, about our core and the, our, our history, where we came from, where we're going, and what's out there. And you know, we, we really encourage people to not only appreciate the incredible things that NASA or international space agencies like ESA or JAXA, things that they're doing, but also to know like, as citizens of those nations or countries that support those programs, you have a, a role as an advocate, too, right. to support these things. So we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, I want to kind of talk about some examples of what those scientific endeavors are, and then maybe talk about some representations of um, those examples or that science in pop culture. So in your mind, why do you think space is so dangerous? Um, I don't know a lot about space. I think because we don't have like a lot of like history or time and like experience going to space, or, like a lot of people going there, that there's just like a lot of uncertainties and like unknowns still. Uh, I don't know, pressure, lack of oxygen, um, the unknown, who knows? It could just be crushed in a matter of instant or lost forever. So why, why do you think space is so dangerous? Um, I think space is dangerous because the like lack of things, like it's like void of like oxygen and things that we need to survive. Space is so dangerous. Sure. Well, it's an environment where we're, we weren't involved to occupy, so like vacuum and um, uh, various temperature changes and stuff like that that we need equipment to survive in. Uh, why it's dangerous? Because we we evolved on this planet and we are used to its protections like the atmosphere. We've got this great big magnetic bubble around us protecting us from all the radiation from space and out in space we have none of that. Welcome back to Spark Science where we're talking with Casey Dreyer, the chief advocate at the Planetary Society. So we were talking about um, science endeavors and space, and I wanted you to give us some examples of what those are. Yeah, so collaboration, and, and usually what I mean by this is international collaboration between um, not just nations, but the scientific communities in those nations. Great example of this, during the Cold War, it was the scientific communities between the Soviet Union and the United States always got together and had back-channel ways to communicate for political issues, for international issues. They found ways to work together. Actually, the United States and the Soviet Union met in space in 1975 in the Apollo-Soyuz project. Hmm. And even today, the International Space Station is one of the greatest international success stories. Fifteen member nations run that with massive contribution from Russia and the United States in the ashes of the Cold War. The U.S. and, and Russia joined on this 30-year partnership to maintain astronauts and cosmonauts in space together in a joint project, along with the member nations of the European Space Agency in Japan. Right. Uh, it, it's a spectacular example of international collaboration, and they have multilateral treaties between nations that guarantee support for the space station. So wow. even as tensions have gotten worse between U.S. and Russia over the years, no matter what, we have a shared goal shared enterprise that we work together every single day in, mm -hmm. which is maintaining the International Space Station. Seeing everything, literally taking a global view of things, you realize how petty things like nations are. Right. Right, that you don't see these divisions from space. And you also see the Earth projected against this backdrop of the, the harshness of space. And every other planet you look at, you know, is it gray or is it greenish gray? Or is it brownish gray, right? 
and Earth is like this blue, bright, green, you know, white clouds. It doesn't even look like any other planet. It just emphasizes the rarity and the fragility of where we live. And so right. that's what a lot of astronauts will come back from space that changed attitude about their our role together and how humans should work together. So that collaboration that we're talking about when it comes to like different countries, is that at all mirrored or even an element of that when we're talking about industry, right? When we're talking about SpaceX and for, you know, cause you're kind of in the world, do you know anything about any collaborations? It, it doesn't in the same way, well, in some ways, but it, it's a very different motivation. Right. Because because of capitalism. Well, well, yeah, I mean, they're, they're businesses, right? right? And so you can buy a SpaceX rocket like the uh, Arabsat company did, right? And they just launched a Falcon Heavy into space with an Arabsat uh, payload, right? So SpaceX will work with other, but they don't have, but they're a business, so they need to have revenue, right? So your incentive structures is completely different, which is why a company like SpaceX is not a replacement for NASA, because the incentives are utterly and completely different. But I think what you just said, so, so give me some scientific, uh, you know, missions and, and programs and studies that are going on right now. In terms of something that I'm excited about that's happening now, um, we have a, a mission at Jupiter, and I love Jupiter, so maybe that's why. Jupiter has a mission called Juno, which is uh, looking at, it's actually, it's looking at the Aurora Borealis equivalent on, on Jupiter, which are just, as you might imagine, spectacular, very mm -hmm. big. Uh, but it has this camera on it that was actually put on the mission only to take pretty pictures of mm -hmm. Jupiter. That's literally why it's there. All the scientific goals of the mission could have been accomplished without a camera. But because it was paid for by NASA, it had a public role. It had a role to serve the public, like we have to put this camera on it. So there's some spectacular, beautiful pictures. It has these big looping orbits around Jupiter. And so if you take all these pictures and put them together, you'll see this planet of Jupiter being spun over and you're flying right over the cloud tops almost and coming back through. Some of the most spectacular pictures of that planet I've ever seen. That's happening now, yeah. right? Um, something that's about to happen also at Jupiter is a mission called Europa Clipper. And it's going to look to start characterizing this moon of Jupiter that has more liquid water than all of the Earth does. Yep. Like two to four times as much liquid water. That liquid water is in contact with, with the rock it's, so it has uh, minerals and nutrients. Uh, it has energy being added to the system through lava. They think there's underground like lava flows and hot vents. Right, because they think that there's gravitational pulls. That's between, from yeah. The, yeah, from the from the presence of Jupiter so close, it kind of squishes the interior right. and, and the pulls. other moons as well. Yep. Right. Yep. Uh, and so it has an active core. So Io, the another moon of Jupiter, has a bunch of volcanism. They right. I think that's similar to what's happening under the oceans. Uh, and then it has time it's been very stable so you have liquid water basic chemical nutrients known for life you have interface with rock and ongoing energy and you have time that's literally everything that the scientific community thinks was required to start life on earth right and it's sitting there in europa so we're going to send a mission there starting in sometime in the 20 mid 2020s but it's yeah. being built right now and it's going to be a very exciting mission we worked at the planetary society we've worked for a long time to support that mission Tell us more about that asteroid mission that you're talking about. So asteroids, right, little just rocks, right, floating around. So we have the asteroid belt. Uh, but there's also all sorts of asteroids that can, their orbits will take us really close to or cross the orbit of Earth. We call those near-Earth asteroids. Right. Or near-Earth objects, more generally, NEOs. And NEOs, uh, notably, uh, very likely responsible for the end of the dinosaurs, right? They had a giant asteroid impact about 60 million years ago. And 
these are still out there, right? And on average, Earth has been hit by a destructive global ending, a life-ending asteroid every couple hundred million years. And smaller asteroids that can still cause a lot of damage hit us every couple million years. And so they're out there. So, you know, we take the stance that we don't want to be hit by those mm -hmm. planetary society. So we need to do two things. One, we need to find them and understand their orbits. And we, we frankly only have recently started to do that. Right. So they're, they're trying to find, they found over 20,000 near-Earth asteroids. None of them are likely to hit us yet, thankfully, um, but we still are looking. There's another mission. The other thing that we need to do besides finding them is being able to, should one be on our collision course with Earth, can we stop it? Right. And so the easiest way to do that would be, you know, as far out as you can, as much advance notice as you can, you want to just slam something into it and divert its orbit a little bit so it misses Earth instead of hitting it. And so there's a mission now being built now that's going to launch in 2022 called DART, the Double Asteroid Redirect Test. Mm -hmm. And it's launching on a SpaceX Falcon 9. And it's a mission that's basically a chunk of metal with a camera on it. Um, and it's going to this moon, uh, this asteroid in the main belt. Uh, a little beyond Mars, called uh, Didymos is the name of the asteroid. Okay. And Didymos is actually has a little moon, a little asteroidal moon around the asteroid. They call it Diddy Moon. And we're going to practice on that? We're going to smack into the tiny little moon, <laughs> and we're going to measure exactly how it changes the orbit. So mm -hmm. it gives engineers and scientists a lot of information in a practical sense. If you really do slam something into something else, you know, you don't know necessarily the composition of the asteroid. You don't know its exact surface features. Um, this will give us a hint of how to, to do that. So it's our first time wow. practicing deflecting an asteroid. That's not going to hit us, but it's, it's the practice part of that. It's like our student lab that we're doing on a huge scale. Yep. <laughs> so with that, we're going to take a break. And when I come back, I want to talk about... Why was it 15 years ago? It makes me think of like the core and like, you know, all those movies that came out around then. But I also want to talk about the show that you are featured on. Um, and uh, yeah, we'll talk about that as well. Where would you want to go? If you could go on a spaceship, if you go anywhere, where would you want to go? I would want to go to Mars because it's like, I don't know, we like starting to know stuff about it, like with the water being there and stuff. like seems like it'd be interesting. If there was another planet with life, I would go there. Okay. Explore that. Yeah. W what about anything you know actually does exist? No, actually does exist. Probably, um, probably Mars. I don't know. There's so many cool places. Uh, Titan would be like a good first choice. NASA landed something there and they said it landed in pudding. And it's like, what kind of pudding? I would believe tapioca. Um, but then, you know, you're kind of thinking just in the solar system, but if it's anywhere, like, what about, like, exosolar planets? Let's go check those out. What, is, what does the universe look like? I don't think I can answer that question. But if you need an answer, let's go with Titan. What's the one that, like, rains diamonds? Is that Venus? Ooh. I don't actually know, and I'm an astronomer. <laughs> uh, I think it's Saturn? I'm not sure. Okay. Somewhere that rains diamonds. Maybe that, or I'd want to go really, really far, because I, I feel like people are always wondering, like, where's the edge of it or the end, and I know it's like infinite and whatever, but I think it'd be really cool to go just as far as possible. You're an explorer. Yeah, I guess. <laughs> All right. 
Welcome back to Spark Science. We're talking with Casey Dreyer, who's the chief advocate at the Planetary Society, and we've been talking about not letting asteroids kill us, which has been in pop culture for the last, I don't know, many years? 20. Yeah, what deep is deep impact? Deep impact, and then there's also the movie Armageddon. Armageddon, that's the one I kept on forgetting. Mm. And that actually came out like 20 years ago, right? Yeah, so five years later, we started looking for them. It wasn't until the late 80s, early 90s that the very first searches from NASA began. And the first congressional directives telling NASA that they had to find asteroids that mm. could threaten Earth came in the mid-90s. And likely that has something to do with the fact that they had two movies within a year of each other about right. asteroid impacts. There's also a time of, you know, Hollywood disaster movies, yes, too. Yes, that's true. You actually are featured in a show called Mars, all caps. Mm -hmm. That show talks about this idea that you kind of alluded to, where you want to do... You know, you, science for science sake does actually build cooperation, builds, um, builds collaborations, helps, helps humanity, but there's also this kind of need, why should we do this, right? Like, how, why are we going to give money to this, you know? We had set out into the unknown. Explorers of a new world. That was part of the first mission. Mission control. We're looking at a red planet. And you hope for humanity. What are, what are your takes on that? Like, what, what have you contributed to that show? Um, what, what have you, has your experience <laughs> well, has been? I was one of the uh, many experts featured on the show, so it's yeah. not like, the, and then they have a... You're not like an actor where no, you're like... No, there's, the, <laughs> there's a fictionalized, you know, part of the show, and then there's a bunch of people talking about the reality of kind of the same themes. It's interesting. Right. So they did two seasons of this. Um, and it's fun, yeah. It's a it's a cool show, and I really recommend people check it out. It, they they did a lot of work in it, and yeah, I mean the the theme is interesting because it, it what it does it looks back into history, particularly for human exploration settlement, and it looks at those motivating factors. When did that really start to take off? And it you know the advocates of this certain type of space exploration would say, well, only when people were motivated by greed. Did we actually have true, you know, expansion of human presence? The metaphor, or whatever you want to use, it breaks down uh, in space because mm -hmm. the problem is, you know, space doesn't really have anything that we couldn't just do a lot easier on Earth. Mars is mainly like basaltic rocks, you know, and volcanic rocks, and just and iron, you know, which we got plenty of here. So the problem is that there's no real economic incentive to drive the individual and private investment into space. Right. Um, what we're starting to see instead is some individuals in the world are so vastly wealthy now that they can pursue idiosyncratic interests of how to play with their wealth. And you have basically patrons of space. This is, actually goes back to an earlier era in particularly U.S. history where you had the equivalent being done, very wealthy captains of industry were, instead of making rockets, they were making um, telescopes, big mm. observatories around the, around the country. There's all these sorts of grand observatories made in the 19th, early 20th century were primarily benefactors from individual wealthy individuals right. who put in the equivalent of hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars of their fortune. Mm -hmm. for space exploration, right, looking into the skies. And so we had a brief period in the 20th century where it was dominated by government, and now we're almost reverting back to an old historical situation where it's a mix of 
some government investment, but also patronage from very wealthy individuals to enable space exploration. So you have companies now who talk about making money in space. There are ways to do that, but it's not by going to the moon or Mars mm -hmm. or further out. Um, it's usually going up into space and then pointing right back down to us. Right. No, I, I really like that that phrase, this idea of like space patrons versus space explorers or space, you know. Mm -hmm. And, and I, I think that you really touch on something that's really... I think people don't think about that the first scientists were people, at least in Western civilization, were people that had the money to do it. But, and just to clarify for these observatories, rarely would the patron themselves use it. Right, that's true. It was true. to buy their good name, right? basically, to put a legacy, right? In the same way that you had the Rockefellers and the Carnegie uh, creating libraries. You have these Carnegie libraries all over the country, right? They used their immense wealth that they had gathered, usually through, you know, inequitable distribution of wealth. Mm -hmm. But then they used that to try to make a legacy that was more positive to society, and you mm -hmm. know, some of them did. Right. And so that's where you have a patron. In the similar way now, we have people like Jeff Bezos, people like Richard Branson, who are using their own personal wealth and acting as a patron and enabling a large number of people to build this infrastructure with right. their, hoping to leave some sort of lasting legacy. I think that's still, good for us, right? Sure. I'm, <laughs> I am so glad they're doing it. Yeah, right. absolutely. And, and I think that people are very excited. So mm -hmm. in our last like minute, what would you say is like the next, what, what are you most excited about when, <laughs> when we're dealing with the, yeah. you know, people actually traveling into space? Well, absolutely. Uh, so Commercial Crew is what it's called, this commercial program that NASA has been funding. And it's actually contracted with two companies, Boeing and SpaceX, both of which are building their own separate commercially operated and owned spacecraft to service NASA's needs. So basically NASA's saying, we want to basically buy the equivalent of a ticket on United Airlines right. and send an astronaut to the space station. But they're giving them a leg up to build that capability. Mm -hmm. So SpaceX looks like it might be ready as soon as later this year to test sending humans uh, from the US back up to the space station. This will be the first time since the shuttle retired in 2011. Right. Um, Boeing is close behind it, so I'm very excited about that. And then, of course, the big recent announcement is that NASA has been directed to land humans on the moon in five years uh, using a mix of commercial enter, uh, entities and other ways to try to do this and to see if they can do it. It's a very, very aggressive timeline, but I would love to be alive. You know, you and I were not alive when the moon landings happened. Mm -hmm. I would love to see humans walk on another celestial body mm -hmm. again, just as a, just like to, and then to do it in a way that we don't leave this time, right. that we maintain that, we build this foothold into the universe somewhere else and learn how to do that, maintain that knowledge and start building out our capabilities there. It's really exciting. I love talking to you about all these things because you are so in the world and you know all this stuff and and uh, and I want to thank you for coming on our show. Yeah, we weren't even a bummer today. No, we weren't. It was all up. Yeah. <laughs> thank you so much. Yep. Happy to be here. We want to thank Casey Dreyer for taking the time to share his knowledge of space travel, space policy, and also the industry of space exploration. Thank you to National Geographic for audio clips of U.S. Senator John Glenn and the television show Mars.
Spark Science is recorded on location in Bellingham, Washington at Western Washington University. The producers are Suzanne Blaze, Regina Barber-DeGraff, and Robert Clark. Student editors are Julia Thorpe, Zarek Coakley, and Aaron Howard. Spark Science is sponsored by WW and created in partnership with KMRE. Thank you for joining us. If you want to listen to past episodes, visit sparksciencenow.com. If there's a science idea you're curious about, post a message on our Facebook page, Spark Science Now, or tweet us at Spark Science Now.